Welcome to BioCentury This Week, the weekly podcast with BioCentury's editorial team. I'm Jeff Cranmer, executive editor of BioCentury, and today I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, editor-in-chief. Steve Austin, Washington editor. And Stephen Hansen, director of Biopharma Intelligence. All right. Well, today we have a big deal between Al Nylum and Roche in hypertension. We'll talk about whether it's a good deal for Al Nylum and what it will do for its growth trajectory. And we preview the next BioCentury show. Steve is in conversation with Richard Pops, the longtime CEO of Alkermes. And we'll also have the latest on the Inflation Reduction Act and its impact on biopharma, as well as what the FTC has been up to. But first, the early bird rate is about to expire to a tender presented at the BioCentury Bay Helix East-West Biopharma Summit. The event is in Cambridge, Massachusetts this October. Don't miss your chance to meet China CEOs in the Boston area. The early bird rate is expiring July 27th. You can find out more about the conference at BioCenturyEastWest.com. Among the highlights, Chris Wiebacher will be in a fireside chat, and we'll be telling you about some of the other panelists, panel topics uh, in the weeks to come. Don't miss it. Okay, as Alnylum seeks to expand its reach beyond rare diseases into more prevalent indications, the company has picked Roche as its global partner for a mid-stage hypertension program. It's a RNAi gene silencing therapeutic. Alnylum is getting 310 million up front. The BioBucks and the deal approach about $3 billion. The company will co-commercialize this therapy in the U.S. Roche will be handling commercialization outside the U.S. Stephen, I'm curious, is this a good deal for Al Nylum? How does it fit with their overarching strategy? Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, no, I think um, I do think it's a good deal for Al Nylum, and I think there's several really interesting threads to this deal. I guess the first one that that struck me was, you know, when you talk about them getting into prevalent diseases, I think the fact that it is hypertension in particular, I think is interesting because this has been a space where um, it's littered with, you know, beta blockers, calcium blockers, uh, ACE inhibitors that are generic and super cheap. So it's been a desert when it comes to innovative therapies coming into the broad hypertension space. I mean, there has obviously been companies like Syncor or Mineralis that have come in on resistant hypertension. Uh, there's obviously been lots of players coming into pulmonary arterial hypertension, but going after a broad-based hypertension has really not been not seen much innovation at all over the past few decades. So I find this really interesting from that perspective. In addition to the fact that Roche really doesn't have a a history, at least a near-term you know history in the cardiovascular space either. So it's an interesting choice for a partner. Stephen, yeah, I agree. I mean, the thing for Al Nylum, I think we look today, they have like a $25 billion market cap, right? And regardless of whether their mission is to get into the vertex stratosphere or to grow their valuation and get taken out, which I know 
a lot of speculation about that. At the end of the day, they want to grow their company, add products and grow their valuation. And so they have talked about the need to go into prevalent diseases. They have talked about their value proposition as being, what if you just took one injection every six months or year instead of all the daily medicines that people have to take in polypharmacy? That sort of seems to be how they want to play. I think that this product plays into that idea. We don't really know. I mean, it is really difficult, as you've pointed out, in cardiovascular, you've got very cheap generics, so you've really got to have a good value proposition. Yep. I, I don't know that we know what kind of revenue stream this could bring. Presumably, they've done the math. But what are the factors that are going to affect the commercialization of a product like this? Yeah, so I think that's why, you know, they've made the decision, which I think is, it's going to be, well, I think at this point, it's the right decision is you've got to do the cardiovascular outcomes trial pre-market, because I don't think there's any other way that they're going to convince physicians to move a patient off of, you know, what are pretty efficacious therapies that oftentimes they can stay on and be on for years. So if you're really going to try and induce a paradigm shift here in terms of how physicians think about treating hypertensive patients, I think you have to be able to show a really meaningful benefit that is more than just convenience, you know, of, of switching between pills. And, and I'll, I'll jump in here and say that, you know, just like everything else, the, the Inflation Reduction Act is going to shape the commercial environment here because you're, you're not going to be in a situation like you were, I don't know, with statins, where you could introduce them without the cardiovascular outcomes data, get some uptake, and then ramp up a huge amount more uptake after you've got the cardiovascular trials. They don't have the luxury of doing that because remember, Alnylam's products are going to be treated under the IRA the same way small molecule drugs are, because they're NDAs. So they have nine years. And I think that that also probably is a factor in them uh, doing the deal with Roche, because they need a partner that can do a a big launch right away and Mm -hmm. capture as much of that value. And they don't have much time to to change practice, because, um, you know, um, Cinderella turns into a pumpkin after nine years. And they, they're not going to have any um, market or potentially not going to have any market. The other thing I'd say on, on that, you know, it will be very interesting about the pricing and, and what model they use, because this is, in a way, it's kind of a replay maybe of the uh, PCSK9 inhibitors, where um, they came out with a price that was higher than what the market was willing to tolerate. They had to recalibrate. In some cases, they came out with interesting subscription models for that. But the, again, they're not going to have the time to do a trial and error on this. They've got to come out with a strategy that's going to be commercially effective as quickly as possible, or they're going to lose their window. And it is their second product, right? In the cardiovascular space, they have a product now owned by Novartis. That's right. Yeah, they've got they've got a PCSK9 inhibitor, which plays into what Steve was just talking about into that space. Um, but theirs is obviously has a different profile or it's a similar profile of this one and that it's a essentially a twice a year injection. And so mm-hmm. you're playing a sort of a convenience play there as well. But that was obviously that was something that they had out licensed to medicines company, which was then acquired by Novartis. So they didn't have as much play in, in sort of the development of that program, but both very interesting markets and in how you go about trying to gain volume, I think. And, and another kind of nuance for the US market is that even though this is regulated by FDA as an NDA, and you think of those kind of products as being Medicare Part D, it's quite likely that this is going to be Medicare Part B, 
because it's likely to be administered in a physician's office, which from the standpoint of the manufacturers is a good thing. They're likely to get a higher reimbursement for it under Part B, at least the way that Part B is is administered now than they would under Part D. So I think it's just a really interesting dynamic here. It, it's obviously going to be an important part of Alnylam's strategy if they want to grow to be able to create products like this or be successful with products like this. But as we've talked about, there are several sort of overhangs or risks associated with this. Um, maybe Roche is a great partner to help them get it. They're probably doing this by themselves would be really hard. And it is a co-commercialization deal, right, Stephen? Yeah, obviously, lots of different companies have taken different strategies and how they build out their commercial infrastructure and organization. You know, Nylum has taken the initial step of focusing on rare diseases where they can, you know, more comfortably build out wholly owned products and build out their organization. But to, to expect to be able to jump from a rare commercial setting into a prevalent disease such as this, you know, in one go is obviously unlikely. So I, I think this is actually a pretty smart way for them to kind of get a foothold in a larger indication, start to build out that organization such that you can in the future potentially have more capacity for taking on, you know, a larger share of these more prevalent diseases going forward. So to me, it kind of points towards growth building really for the future, as opposed to any sort of setup for a takeout, as you were alluding to earlier in the uh, in the discussion. All right. Well, we'll have uh, our colleague Paul Bananos' story out on biocentury.com today and it'll be interesting to see how uh how this helps al nylum get to the next level whether it does or whether this primes them to be a takeout as my colleagues are alluding to here all right well steve recently sat down with richard pops for the biocentury show that'll be coming out on thursday steve what did y'all talk about so well, richard is the ceo of alkermes he's also a past chair of bio and he's on the boards of pharma and bio. So he's really interested in public policy. I asked him kind of to start with if the rapid biomedical progress that we've experienced over the last two or three decades, curing some forms of cancer, mRNA vaccines for COVID, curing hepatitis C, and really so much more that it's really hard to keep track. If all of that is inevitable, if rapid biomedical progress is inevitable, and um, he said, no, it's not. Um, he's confident that science is going to keep uh, advancing, but the public policy environment that makes it possible to turn science into medicine is fragile and it's at risk. Uh, we talked about issues with the Inflation Reduction Act, things that everybody who's listened to this podcast um, has heard me talk about and is tired of hearing me talk about. And what Richard Pop said is that that law is a consequence of negative public perceptions of the industry, and that it won't be possible to change that law or to write the public policy environment until there's a fundamental change in public perception about the industry. And what's really interesting to me is that he said that the key thing that's going to improve the industry's image is for companies, for CEOs like himself, to be able to provide clear, credible explanations of the prices of their medicines, why they price them the way that they do. Uh, and I thought that was really um, interesting because a lot of times people in the industry think, that it's really about convincing the public of how, how important their medicines are, how valuable they are. And what, what he stressed was that there needs to be a conversation that will convince the public that there's a credible reason for why the drugs are priced the way that they are and why they have to be priced that way. Um, and it was also interesting, I'm sorry, in part because I discussed public policy last week with 
Alexander Hardy, the CEO of Genentech, which I'll have a story out soon also. And we touched on some of the same issues with him. So, Steve, I know that Pops is a very, very thoughtful person and executive. And the way you've expressed it is saying that they have to explain to the public why drugs have to be priced the way they are. But, you know, to some degree, they have to be priced that way. But not every drug has to be priced the way it is. We know that there are a lot of companies that are increasing drug prices without accelerating their value ahead of inflation. And it is not only that the public doesn't understand drug pricing, but that the public is faced with escalating drug pricing that they can't afford and they're having to make sort of difficult choices. So does POPs take any responsibility for the industry to actually modify or rein in pricing at all? Well, well, what was implied in what he said is that you have to have something that's reasonable, something that people will uh, buy into. He basically said, you know, there may be cases where drug a drug is worth $3 million or maybe worth $850,000. If it is, you have to be able to explain to the public and you have to explain to the public why it is. And what's implicit, what he said, is that there may be cases when it's not worth what they're, they're asking. And that's why you can't explain it. The other thing that we talked about, of course, was the role that PBMs, the pharmacy benefit managers, play in this equation in really inflating the costs of drugs and particularly inflating the list prices of drugs and in limiting access to drugs. And he said that this is an underappreciated and really important topic. One of the things that he pointed out, which I found really interesting, as he said that um, there's a huge increase in the number of drugs that are excluded from pharmacy, from formularies, uh, from one formulary, another of, of the big payers. And, you know, the, those formulary exclusions mean that people can't get access to those drugs, or it's very difficult for them to get access to those drugs. Formulary exclusions are usually the result of the PBMs failing to come to an agreement with a pharmaceutical company about the size of the rebates that they're going to pay. Basically, you know, the way I would look at it, basically the size of the kickbacks they're going to give to the PBMs in order to get uh, onto the formularies. And, you know, there is legislation that's pending in Congress that's supposed to do something about um, PBMs. I think something is going to pass. And I think it's going to be way more than a day late and way more than a dollar short. Steve, I will say I totally agree. And we've known for a long time how problematic this structure is with PBMs, but it is incredibly complex. And the prospect of explaining that to the general public who are most likely to say, oh, I can't get my drug, it's the drug company's fault, rather than expecting the public to understand this arcane system of PBMs and kickbacks, if you like, um, that, that seems a, a very tall order. Well, the, and that may be one of the benefits of this legislation, which I uh, denigrate as saying it's a day late, more than a day late, more than a dollar short. It will increase some of the transparency uh, around PBMs. What, what's really needed is to delink the PBM business model from the volume of sales that they get, basically just to, to view PBMs as, as service providers rather than for them to make their money by extracting these um, rebates from, uh, from drug companies. And of course, one of the things that's been proposed along those lines over the years is to require the PBMs pass on rebates 
um, to the public at the pharmacy counter, I think that you would find that uh, magically the amount of rebates that are required would go down substantially if they had to do that. It was a very interesting conversation. And, and like I said, the, the, the conversation with Alexander Hardy on some of the IRA issues was also really interesting and touched on overlapping points. Steve, uh, last week we saw the FTC withdraw its prior advocacy for PBMs. What's the importance of that? You know, I think that they're basically saying, uh, look, PBMs, you can't go around um, saying that uh, in the past the FTC has defended your models, uh, the PB, PBM model, because the PBM model has changed. What the FTC didn't say, but which is true, is that one of the big changes in the PBM model is a consolidation. That basically, three PBMs control 80% of the market now. And the FTC has launched an investigation of, of PBMs. You know, Maybe they'll do something to try to change the, the business practices there. Uh, this is a good segue, though, for me to say something very quickly about something else the FTC did last week, which is that it put out new guidelines discussing how it's going to look at a certain um, antitrust issues going forward. It basically created a justification for moving from the traditional limited view of antitrust, in which it looked at horizontal mergers based on the potential to create monopolies. They had formulas based on uh, market shares and sales to regulating vertical mergers based on theories of how companies might behave. Uh, for biopharma, the clearest example of this is the FTC's effort to prevent Amgen from acquiring Horizon. And in that case, and in most of the others, I think ultimately the courts are gonna determine if that deal can go forward, if the FTC's stance is legal. But even if the FTC fails to block transactions, even if the courts side with it, I think its guidelines could and will chill some M&A because companies are going to think twice about doing a deal if they think that even that they're ultimately going to prevail, if they're going to have to spend the time and money required to defend their deal in the courts. Steve, circling back on the IRA, uh, we saw J&J, I think it was, um, file a lawsuit against the Inflation Reduction Act. What's the latest with the litigation that's going on right now? So so J&J, their Janssen unit, did jump into the litigation party. So did Estellas. They're making similar arguments to other pending suits from Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pharma, and the Chambers of Commerce. Altogether, I think there's six um, suits now that are making similar or overlapping constitutional claims. They're all in different jurisdictions, though there's a hint that the federal government may try to move, for example, the Bristol-Myers case to um, Washington, D.C., where the Merck case is. It's not clear whether they'll succeed in that. But I think that the idea of having cases launched in multiple jurisdictions is intended to increase the chance that at least one court will rule in the industry's favor. You know, the home run the industry wants, they want to get a preliminary injunction in one of these cases that would prevent the law or the portions of the law relating to the setting of Medicare drug prices. They want a preliminary injunction that will prevent that from going into effect. And regardless of whether they get a preliminary injunction, they're aiming to get this to the Supreme Court. And I think that they believe that the Supreme Court uh, is going to be sympathetic to at least some of their arguments, probably the Fifth Amendment takings argument might be the one that the court would be the most sympathetic to. You know, and like any litigation, it's really impossible to predict what will happen. But what you can say with, with confidence is that the industry has lined up the most powerful and some of the most talented lawyers and law firms in the United States to argue its case. 
And um, if there's a scintilla of, an, of a chance that they're going to be able to win this in the courts, they're grasping for that. Are you really with scintilla of a chance here, Steve? No, I don't. I think that there's more than a scintilla of a chance that they're going to at least delay it. And uh, I think that there's some possibility that they're going to, at a minimum, force the government to change it. The question will be how rapidly that will happen. Will they succeed in getting an injunction that prevents it from going into effect as quickly as it would otherwise? I don't know. They're certainly trying to do that. So, Steve, uh, is this yeah. is this something where they can straight down parts of it and not the whole or even delay parts of it and not the whole? You know, it's litigation, so you never know what's going to happen. That's certainly not what the, the pharmaceutical companies are asking the courts to do. As They're not asking them to strike down the whole IRA. That's a huge, huge thing. The, right, but they are asking not their industry. Yeah, exactly. Most of it's <laughs> not their industry. But they are asking uh, basically to, to have uh, a pause in implementation of the, of the price setting provisions. And they're saying that the way that both the way that CMS is planning to implement them and the ways that the Congress wrote them in the first place are unconstitutional. And uh, they're not saying that they think that they could be modified in some way or that the interpretation of them could be modified in some way that would make them constitutional. They're asking for them to be thrown out wholesale. And I think that there's also a calculation, which is that it's going to be extraordinarily unlikely to the point of impossibility to have any kind of legislation that makes major changes in response to a Supreme Court ruling, as long as there's a divided Congress or divisions between Congress and the White House. Right. I mean, just one last note. At the same time, going back to what we talked about earlier, I can't imagine how they are going to handle the PR of this with the public, because it really just comes across as pushing back on, you know, helping people with their drug prices. You know, I think I, I think and, and I think that's why um, people like Alexander Hardy are talking to me and others. They're trying to make the case to say, you know, this isn't about reducing the costs of drugs. This is about the way that you reduce the cost of drugs. And they're trying to make the case and have been from the start and saying that, for example, the provision in the law that drugs that are approved under NDAs only get nine years before they're um, subject to price controls is something that is going to drive innovation away from it, from small molecules and other products that are regulated under NDAs and toward large molecules. And that that's something that is bad for medicine. It's bad for the public. They're also going to make this similar case on um, the single orphan exemption, things like that. They're basically going to say, look, it's not about whether um, drug prices should be regulated in some fashion. It's not about the idea that there's a social contract under which at some point of point certain drugs should go generic or biosimilar. It's really about the way that Congress has done it so that and they've done it in a way that will have consequences that Congress um, didn't intend and didn't appreciate when it wrote and enacted the law. All right, we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. I'm sure there'll be more lawsuits dropping as we approach the uh, next shoe, which, Steve, it's the uh, announcement of which drugs are on the list. Yeah, that's right. There's going to be the first 10 drugs are going to be announced at the end of September. We're probably going to see litigation between now and then. We're certainly going to see it after that. One of the things that uh, is being considered by some of the companies I know, um, because I've spoken with some of the attorneys who are working on it, is 
another kind of litigation, another angle to the litigation, which is around the administrative procedures that CMS is using to um, implement the act. And that's separate from all the lawsuits that have been filed so far, which are challenging it on constitutional grounds. I don't know if we're going to see those um, those lawsuits on um, administrative procedure, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised if we did. All right. Well, thanks for that update, Steve. And of course, you'll continue to keep your finger on the pulse here. Simone, Stephen, thanks for joining today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.